0: Our assessment is that uh, there's not much indication at this point that subprime mortgage issues have spread into uh, the broader mortgage market, which still seems to be healthy, um, and the lending uh, side of that still seems to be
1: healthy. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This time I am really excited to welcome back James Howard Kunstler. Many of you know him as the author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and the World Made by Hand series. Jim's been on the podcast before. I'd like to call him an old friend now. Is that a fair thing, Jim? Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast.
0: Well, nice to be here with you.
1: You've got a following of your own, significantly larger than this one, I'm positive, on your podcast, and we were just chatting about kind of you taking some time off to finish up a book. Before we get into this, why don't you just give some background or update on where you're at with that new project of yours?
0: Well, I wrote a series of books, and I'm actually sort of three-quarters of the way through it. The first one was called World Made by Hand. I intended all along to write four of them, one for each of the four seasons. This series of novels is set in a sort of a post-economic collapse, post-petroleum America. The object of it was to depict in a very kind of tactile way what it would feel like to live in that kind of a, a world and that kind of an economy. Because, you know, I'd written a couple of books I'd written several books about, you know, the long emergency, which was about our energy predicament and about the banking fiasco, and I'd written about suburbia and all of its problems, and really, all of this material kind of tending towards a view of the American way of life as not really having much of a future in the way that it's currently lived. So I wanted to present a picture of where we might be going. It's not necessarily a wishful environment that I'm creating. But it's very different from the way we live now, although it's still recognizably American culture.
1: I can't wait for it to come out. The release date on the latest installment of World Made by Hand series?
0: That's going to be September of 2014. That's this year. And the first book was called World Made by Hand. The second book, which took place in the fall of that year, is called The Witch of Hebron. The third one, which I just completed, is called A History of the Future. And in that book, the uh, story sort of opens up. I have a character who's the son. He's the 20-year-old son of the protagonist from the first installment. And his name is Daniel. And he's gone out to venture to see what's happened in the rest of America.
1: The son of the junkyard guy.
0: Well, not the junkyard guy. He's the son of the carpenter guy. Oh,
1: okay, the carpenter guy. Yep, gotcha.
0: He's found his way down after a series of misadventures, to Tennessee, where he's entered the dark heart of a breakaway republic that's run by a sort of white supremacist government and led by a lady TV evangelist, former country singer, who's sort of like Dolly Parton meets Hitler.
1: (laughs) Now, you're getting back geographically into where Brother Job and his clan come from.
0: Right? Well, they come from Virginia. Oh,
1: Virginia. Okay. Yeah.
0: For those listeners unacquainted with the World Made by Hand series, Brother Job is the head honcho of an evangelical uh, Jesus group that has come to my little fictional town in upstate New York fleeing the disorders of Dixieland in this future that I've created. And they have bought the high school in this little town of Union Grove, New York, and moved in and sort of set up kind of a commune, and they're transforming the high school into a pretty elaborate utopian community.
1: Well, when this comes out, we'll have to have you back on. I love the first two books. Well, thank you. uh, I'm excited for this one. It's not like you're predicting this world, but it is a fascinating kind of look into one of the possibilities of what this future may hold.
0: Yeah, it's simply an exercise in the imagination.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it.
0: That's really all. You know, it's hard to say how things are going to turn out. You know, we may end up in the Ray Kurzweil future, and we may end up (laughs) in the uh, Cormac McCarthy future, and all kinds of things in between. Mine's sort of halfway in between.
1: Well, I'd like to talk about another imaginary thing, that being our economy today. You up for that? Yeah, sure. I write all the time about economic issues. And I write a lot about, as do you, write about this whole suburban experiment that we're on and how it intersects with the economy. And I always get these people who push back and say, well, Chuck, you're not an economist. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't get the theories. You don't get the concepts. I wanted to have you on because I'm sure you get that same pushback as well because you don't have Ph.D. economists. You're not Ben Bernanke, as if those are the only people who understand the economy.
0: Yeah, well, I've certainly never been tormented by that.
1: Well, <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't take it as personally as I Because, you know,
0: I, I have to insert here that I, I have a personal theory. I mean, speaking of theories. Yeah, go for it. I have a certain theory about the charismatic personality, which has to do with, you know, whether you're considered an authority on anything, right? Right. My theory is that there's sort of a declension of personalities. The first one are people who know what they're doing. The second one is people who pretend to know what they're doing. The third one is people who seem to know what they're doing. And the fourth one is people who don't know what they're doing. (laughs) People who know what they're doing are very appealing. right? That's that kind of charismatic confidence and conviction that people detect in others. That's hard to actually describe. right? Most of the people who are authorities in the world are in one of the other categories. Right. You know, people who pretend to know what they're doing or or don't know what they're doing.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, let's start with that. Because you know, one of the things we've had experienced the last decade and particularly the last five years is this kind of lowering of interest rate policies. I was doing housing permitting back in two thousand when the whole dot com bubble burst and interest rates were brought way, way down. You know, at that time it was seemed way down. Two thousand eight we had the housing crises and now we've had essentially zero interest rates at the federal level for going on five years now. What's the theory behind this, or what's the thought behind this, and how's that working out?
0: Well, there's the theory, that's one thing, and then there's the actual practice, which is another thing, and then there's the whole conflation of uh, dishonesty and lying behind the combination of those two things. You know, the lower interest rates do not exist in a vacuum. They exist in a dynamic nexus of monetary operations, I think what's going on in the larger picture is that the economy that we got used to having, the productive industrial economy of the last 200 years, really isn't operating the way it used to. It's not producing the kind of wealth that we need for it to continue its monetary operations. By that, I mean the abstractions of this thing that we call money. And indeed, one of the manifestations of this is that it's getting harder and harder to tell what money really is. You know, is it a U.S. dollar? Is it a bond called a collateralized debt obligation? Right. Is it a round piece of gold? What What is actually money?
1: Is it a digital Bitcoin? Yeah.
0: yeah is it a digital, you know, figment of the Internet? The main problem with our economy, such as it is, with the financial part of it, is that we've lost the ability to pay interest on debt. And since we have a debt-based financial system and money system, because in effect money is debt, money is debt that has been created in the past, we need to pay the interest on that debt. And we can't because we're simply not generating the kind of wealth that we used to generate from the production Of things of value, you know, namely manufactured goods. We just really don't do that anymore. Most of our activity over 40% of the economy now is comes out of the financialized part of the economy, which means the part of the economy that just generates digital and paper securities and performs trading operations in these things. Right. So we're not covering the interest in our debt and we can't generate new wealth. And as that occurs, we're trying to remediate it or offset it by simply doing what's called money printing. And of course, we don't use a, a printing press per se anymore. You know, we just create uh, digital money at the Federal Reserve and send that out into the
1: banking system. This is the but, the quantitative easing model. Yeah, yeah. But we've done
0: so much of this, and we've racked up so much debt of every kind, both public and private, that. We have to keep the interest rates artificially low because if they were allowed to creep up to a a level that realistically reflected the price of borrowing money, we wouldn't be able to pay the interest on all of the old debt that we hold. And and that includes both the debt of uh, the United States government and of all the households and businesses in the U.S.A., So basically, we can't cover our debt. That's sort of the central problem. We've got a debt problem. And we can't create enough new wealth to roll over the old debt. So the likelihood is that the result that all of that will produce is a kind of comprehensive contraction of wealth and of economic activity of the type we've known. And the consequent problem of that is that we don't know any other way to create wealth other than having a Techno industrial economy. And of course, this includes even the latest computer so called innovations, you know, everything from 3D printing to the new biological and medical innovations and a lot of the energy things that are being touted as a way to replace fossil fuels. But these are really only an extension of that. And so far, they've only manifested in the financial part of the economy, meaning they've only manifested in terms of, uh, you know, people selling stocks for businesses that do bioresearch and selling stocks for companies that do so-called renewable energy and, and for companies that are engaged in shale gas and shale oil operations. Right. None of this stuff has demonstrated yet that it truly produces the kind of wealth that we need. To cover the cost of running an industrial economy. So I guess bottom line, you're seeing the crapping out of an industrial economy and all of the complicated ways that economists, politicians and bankers are attempting to work around that collapse. You know, most of it is bewildering to the average person and includes a vocabulary that's incomprehensible. And, you know, a lot of the terminology is deliberately made to be incomprehensible because the bankers really don't want you to understand what they're doing.
1: Right, right. The idea that we're experiencing contraction, the entire theory behind what we're doing now with the zero interest rates and the quantitative easing is that we can counteract contraction. By putting money into the system, we can keep the system from going backwards. You think that's a hopeless cause?
0: Well, yeah, because first of all, the money is money in quotation marks. And the more we do it, the more this debt, this unpayable debt we issue, the more unreal the money becomes, because the money is based on promises that it will be paid back. If the promise to pay back becomes increasingly unreal, then the money will become increasingly unreal. Another way of looking at this is that there are two different ways of going broke. (laughs) Right. You know, one is that you can inflate away your wealth by devaluing the currency or money that you use. And another way of going broke is to have no money. And that's the kind of going broke that you get in something like the depression of the nineteen thirties where there's no there isn't enough money around. There's plenty of other things. You know, in the nineteen thirties, we had plenty of good farmland, plenty of good ores and minerals plenty of manpower, plenty of of everything. But we had a shortage of money. And the money is sort of the circulating blood in the economic system. And when it stops running, the economy stops running. It's a little hard to see where we're going exactly now with the current uh, situation. It appears to be, uh, you know, that we're entering an epic deflationary contraction. But because it's being battled so mightily by the central banks with this so-called money printing or money creation, it could very easily tip over into uh, inflation, you know, dangerous inflation.
1: Now, throughout the 80s and 90s, we had Greenspan, known as the maestro, There was this notion that the economy could just be controlled with a dial, like things go a little bit one way, we just slide the dial a little bit to the right, things go a little bit the other way, we slide the dial a little bit to the left. I've heard your friend Chris Martinson describe this as a tug of war on two sides of a huge chasm. We're pulling in both directions, inflation and deflation as hard as we can, and whichever one wins, the other one you know, is going to go off the charts. Where on that spectrum do you think we're sitting right now?
0: To answer your first question, you know, I think Jim Rickards, the banker slash economist, has explained this really pretty nicely and succinctly, that it's an illusion that the authorities are running a thermostat that can be either dialed up or dialed down. That, in fact, every time they try to manipulate it, it oversteers In one way or another, it overreacts the way that you would overreact when your car is in a skid and you oversteer in one direction and then you start spinning around. I don't think that we are successfully regulating the operations of money. Sooner or later, this slow motion car wreck that we're on is going to produce a crash. One other thing though, I, you know, I think that the 1990s were a very special time. And we have to look at the banking and finance events of that day in the context of the 1990s. It was a time when, for various reasons, the price of fossil fuels were going way down. You know, largely because we had successfully exploited the last great oil, cheap oil resources of conventional oil in the 1980s and 90s, and they were all Online going full blast, and that includes Prudhoe Bay in the in Alaska, and the North Sea, and the Siberian oil fields, and the oil fields in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, in particular the Cantoral field of Mexico. And because of all these new oil fields going full blast, the price of oil went down to eleven dollars a barrel in nineteen ninety nine. Right. So that was also the last great orgy of techno-industrial success that we experienced in industrial economies. You know, it was all enabled by that exceptionally cheap oil, which uh, suddenly started to get more expensive around 2003, 2004, and has only been getting more expensive since. The people that I hang out with uh, intellectually are convinced that there is a relationship between the cheap fossil fuel fiesta that we experienced for all those decades and our ability to keep generating more and more debt to run a debt-based monetary system and a debt-based economy. And once the oil was no longer cheap, the debt-based money system failed.
1: Right. The drag was just too great.
0: Yeah, the drag was just too great. And the drag explicitly being the inability to pay back debt. That already exists, let alone generate new debt that can be paid back.
1: Let's talk a little bit about how this is manifesting in people's lives outside of Wall Street. I was in Wisconsin last week and, you know, amid the stories of JCPenney's and Sears winding down and biting the dust and companies like Best Buy giving up on huge numbers of their big box stores in this little town I was in in Wisconsin, Walmart coming in and actually the city about to subsidize Walmart to the tune of you know millions of dollars in order to get them to build a retail store there. And you've got cities like mine here where we've got strip malls that have been vacant for seven, eight years, yet somehow there's people out there building more strip malls. How do you reconcile if you're just the average person on the ground this narrative you're being fed that everything is going great because we're out building stuff. Yet before your eyes you can see that it's not being occupied, it's not being utilized and we're we're walking away from a lot of things.
0: Well, it's hard to discuss it in simply economic terms because it you know that kind of behavior enters the tragic realm of history. Yeah. Where a society, a group of people behaves the way it does simply because it doesn't know what else to do because it's used to doing that. You know, that, that's the behavior that's comfortable and familiar, so it keeps on doing it. And of course, you know, that fits the definition of insanity of when something's not working to just do more of it. It's simply tragic. You know the, the way it actually manifests in people's lives is that most of the people who are not the 99% are going broke and the 1% are doing just fine, especially under these quantitative easing operations and, you know, all this money printing and the manipulation of markets and the failures of things like price discovery which yeah, you know what, what, markets what, cannot operate without an honest form of reliable right honest price discovery
1: what's your house actually worth
0: yeah or what is a stock really worth or right. what is a bond really worth you know all of these things they represent wealth in which we've vested the authority of so-called money so in this regime of money printing the people who are closest to the issuers of the money are the only ones who are really benefiting, and those are the people in, in the banks and, and the Wall Street investment firms and the hedge funds that are associated with banking. They're close to the money stream. The money comes to them, and it ends up being sort of hermetically sealed within their system. A lot of the money that has been printed, so to speak, you know, ends up in the hands or the accounts of the primary dealer banks, these are the two big to fail banks, the banks that the Federal Reserve does business with. So what they do is you know, they borrow huge amounts of money at nearly 0%, and then they're invited to stash it in the Federal Reserve Bank at 25 basis
1: points. This is the carry trade.
0: That's the carry trade. That's one form of a carry trade right. in which you're doing absolutely nothing. To make money off of interest rate differentials. Now, there, it's a very small interest rate differential of uh, 25 hundredths of a percent. But, you know, when you're dealing with billions of dollars, you end up with millions and millions of profits.
1: It's astounded me and it's amazed me that there aren't riots in the streets and there aren't people, me out, too. you know, burning down buildings because we're literally giving, and is it a gift, these Wall Street banks billions of dollars a year? In just risk-free income.
0: Right. And effort-free income. Effort-free and, income. And let's not forget the money that they get filters down to the individual people who work there in the form of bonuses and and yachts and houses in the Hamptons and apartments on Central Park West.
1: Is this the counter to the Reagan trickle-down economics or is this a corollary to it?
0: I would call it an unanticipated consequence of it, really. Okay. I didn't vote for Ronald Reagan, and I kind of regard him as a, not a very intelligent president, but I don't think that he deliberately set out to sabotage you know, American society.
1: This has kind of gone through my brain, too, because I look at Ben Bernanke, for example, and I, I don't necessarily ascribe to him evil motives. Maybe you do. I try to look and say, okay, well, what's the theory he's operating on? Does he really think that this is helping people? And at what point does someone even in that position have to step back and look and say, wow, this isn't having the impact that we theoretically thought it would? Or are they just stuck?
0: Yeah, I think they're just stuck. And I think the point that somebody steps back and asks himself what he's doing is, you know, what would be called the point of failure. Now, it begs the question, well, what is that point? Had he reached it already by the time that he announced his resignation in the fall of 2013? And I would imagine that You know, to some degree, he did. Of course, he had a good long run in the position that he was in, and, you know, you can't stay there forever. That's not a good idea. But, you know, it's possible that he has absolutely no idea what he wrought. Yeah. So, you know, again, I I don't think these guys are necessarily all evil characters. But the most uh, striking thing about our culture in the last couple of decades is that this is a culture without consequences. That has no sense of consequence that, you know, if you do something and it's going to produce a reaction, that might not be a good thing. A lot of that has come out of our ability to just postpone the repercussions of, of our actions. And that has been successful. But whether that was a good idea in the first place is certainly questionable. You know, we we were probably in for a very big reset at the end of the 20th century, you know, just about the time that the uh, tech bubble collapsed. Rather than actually resetting to a new regime or a new financial agenda, Alan Greenspan managed to engineer another set of bubbles. Right. And Ben Bernanke has simply continued that. And, you know, he's an academic Economist, and we have no reason to believe that he has any particular sense of consequence about what he did.
1: The stock market. I was at a Christmas party a couple weeks ago. People were (laughs) of the mindset because the stock of this particular company had done well and people's 401ks had done well over the last year. There was this mindset that things are moving in the right direction, we're feeling good about the economy. The stock market is another aberration of this whole wind-down of this experiment we're on. You agree with that?
0: Well, obviously, when the stock market goes up, there are quite a few people who feel good. And I think that was largely the point of what the Federal Reserve has done. Or at least it's been you know the one manifestation of their policies that gives a superficial appearance of being successful you know, the value of the stock market goes up, ergo the economy is great, ergo investors are happy. That is, people who either are or pretend to be conversant with money and and finance, it seems all good. It's all good. The truth really is that the stock markets, uh, as well as all markets, really, right now are being manipulated. And the interventions are such that Price discovery cannot occur, and without the mechanism of price discovery, markets don 't really work they 're not really markets they 're just stooges of policymakers and this ends up just being a kind of centrally directed economy that will keep on lurching forward until it doesn 't you know in in the immortal words of herb stein nixon 's old economic advisor who who made the brilliant observation that things go on until they can't. You know, that's sort of related to one of my pet theories of history, which I think is true, which is that people do what they do because it seems like a good idea at the time. Right. The policies of the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury and the attitudes and views uh, and positions of people in the academic uh, economics field all seemed like a good idea at the time, Of the early 21st century. But the mischief that they are creating remains to really play out. And I would take the view that uh, it's not going to end happily.
1: There's a conversation going on in the financial reporting about inflation being really low. And we have this kind of combination of metrics at the Federal Reserve level of unemployment and inflation. And those have felt hinky for a long time are those two good metrics right now? I mean, are people reading those numbers should have confidence in where the country's going?
0: Really, that's just another manifestation of the failure of the price discovery mechanism. Price discovery is about the value of things, but what we're also seeing is so much uh, statistical gaming and lying and also accounting fraud that it's really impossible to take these statistics at face value and make any sense out of them. So, I think at every level of the American economy and to some extent American culture generally, we're so burdened with lying and dishonesty and in particular lying to ourselves about our situation that we're failing to make sense out of what's happening. And because we fail to make sense of what's happening, we can't really come up with any idea or plan B or, or notion of what to do or how to behave or how to conduct ourselves in the face of this larger problem, which is the apparent contraction of a 200-odd-year-long experiment in industrial economies and the financial system that goes with it.
1: I've heard you say that many times, you know, we're we're lying to ourselves. We're not being honest to ourselves. And it's interesting because I hear the inflation numbers, (laughs) and I see the unemployment number released every month. And to me, it's a lie. But yet, of course it is. I realize that the people behind it are not like out necessarily to deceive us. It'd be very inconvenient to be like brutally honest with ourselves, right?
0: Well, sure, And we know for a fact how they manipulated and changed the terms for the you know the inflation indexes 15, 20 years ago under Bill Clinton. Right. You know, they introduced uh, one particular concept called hedonics, which is, you know, a way of gaming the numbers. And they removed the value or cost of food and fuel from the calculus that's used to understand inflation.
1: Right. Because food and fuel hardly impact your discretionary income.
0: Well, I mean, for most people, it's really all about either going to the gas station or the supermarket,
1: Exactly, exactly, yeah. You
0: know, and I mean, you notice when all of a sudden you're paying six and a half bucks for a jar of peanut butter, and it makes a big difference. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I go to the grocery store around here, and I don't have a clue how these ordinary, you know, rural people that I live among, you know, how they pay for their groceries.
1: Dude. And I don't want to be, I get it. I'm well aware of the small sample size problem and yeah. the idea that I can't just look at my experience and extrapolate to everybody else. But I go to the grocery store with the same bag. I fill it up the same way I did a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. It's vastly more expensive.
0: I almost never get out of the supermarket for less than $50. Yeah. Uh, you know, for buying like two days groceries.
1: You know, years ago when our kids were first born. you go to the grocery store, fill up the car, to be a hundred bucks. Now it's 200 plus. And oh yeah. Maybe I am projecting what I'm seeing onto these things and I'm hypersensitive to it, but my gosh, even my Mountain Dew. <laughs> I'm a Mountain Dew drinker and the two liter bottles used to be 89 cents and 99 cents and now you're paying 250 for it. I'm feeling like we're being systematically kind of lied to.
0: Well, we're also being systematically swindled. Right, And that's been one of the features of the economic landscape in our country for the last 20 years is that swindling has become normative. And, you know, it's interesting. One of my pet peeves is uh, legalized gambling. Yeah. I don't happen to think it's a good thing for our, our society. And, and I happen to think that there's a reason that gambling was marginalized for all those years, you know, shoved to the edges of our society. Right. The central reason for that is that it's not healthy for a society to think that it's possible to get something for nothing. Right. When that becomes a normative idea, it's very dangerous because it starts seeping into other areas of of life. You know, all of a sudden people on Wall Street and in banks think that it's okay to get something for nothing by producing a, you know, a phony kind of an investment vehicle that in fact is designed to fail in order to enrich them via other investment vehicles that act as insurance policies and hedges. You know, and I'm talking about the notorious uh, collateralized debt obligations that were associated with the mortgage market and the blow up of the housing
1: bubble. Right, right.
0: And, you know, these were securities that were created deliberately to fail so that the banks could collect the credit default swaps on the failure of the bonds.
1: Right, right.
0: And so I have this pet peeve about gambling, and I I don't think that it's a good idea for people to think that it's possible to get something for nothing. But that idea has now infected every level of American life and corrupted us.
1: Yeah, it makes things like house prices going up double digits every year seem normal. Yeah, like that's what yeah, exactly. we ex- expect. The other insidious thing about that is in this state, and I, I know in New York and many other states too, it's actually the government <laughs> that is uh, promoting the gambling in many ways. Oh, for sure. I did an internship at the state legislature and worked for the people who spend our lottery dollars. They had a little sign on the wall that said, the lotto, it said tax on people who are not good at math.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's so Great. Well, you know, we're having uh, one of those wars right now in the town of Saratoga Springs in upstate New York. Oh, with the casinos.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. the yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Governor Cuomo wants to get a casino into Saratoga. And the, a lot of people in Saratoga don't want to have that thing in here, you know, because they they recognize it for what it is. It's just going to be kind of uh, what we call a… Magnet,
1: Right, right. And, yeah, uh, you know, and it's police, also going to yeah.
0: um, harm the other things that are going on to, to produce income in this town right now, namely the horse racing business, the tourist trade, and yeah. you know many of the other normal businesses in town. But there's an awful lot of people who think it's a great idea too. Right.
1: Let me finish up with this because I think that this is a really important point. And I've read in the long emergency and in also the uh, too much magic kind of your thoughts on this. But I think it's important for people to hear this. You tend to be at least historically more aligned with the Democratic Party. than Well, I, yeah, than I'm a Party. registered
0: Democrat who – have tends to vote for democratic candidates yeah. but I'm pretty disenchanted with them.
1: Well, and I've tended to be a republican. I've gone to republican caucuses and tended to vote republican. You and I I think are similar in that we both kind of have stepped back from at least the federal and for me the state as well political apparatus and say this is not at least when we talk about the financial stuff there's not a lot of difference between these two. <laughs>
0: No, <laughs> we're in a very strange moment of American history. I have to add that I was never really that enthusiastic, a democratic progressive, sure, but largely not because of the impulse to be fair to, you know, to the the common man or the working guy or anything like that, but because you know my experience as an adult in America has coincided with the political correctness movement, yeah, which represents everything I loathe about a certain kind of political personality. Right, that's been a big turnoff for me for thirty odd years, and uh, has alienated me more and more from my peeps, shall we say?
1: Right, right.
0: But this is an odd moment in American political history. You know, you've got two parties that are have been in the process of discrediting themselves. Thomas Frank, the political author, wrote a wonderful book about ten years ago called "What's the Matter with Kansas?" Okay, and the subject of that book is really how the Republican Party. Hornswoggled the working class into voting for it by getting behind all these social issues and, uh, you know, pimping for abortion and, you know, and pounding the Bible and, you know, getting behind gun rights and all those things. The point of Tom Frank's book was that, to a large extent, these uh, newly recruited Republican voters were wildly voting against their own interests. So the Republican Party. Uh, has successfully kind of discredited itself. And the Democratic Party, you know, uh, especially as embodied in Barack Obama selling out to Wall Street. Yes. And then becoming president in 2009 and doing absolutely nothing for five and a half years to reestablish the rule of law in banking and finance. That failure is so monumental. This period of history is like the 1850s in America when the Whig Party died. The Whig Party had been the progressive party of its day. Its day lasted about 40 years. In the mid-1850s, it just disappeared overnight out of sheer irrelevance because it could not cope with the central problem of American politics at the time, which was slavery.
1: Right, right.
0: It, It could not come up with any kind of a coherent response to slavery. Or address the question of what are we now going to do about it? You know, it, it disappeared and a quote radical new party took its place very quickly called then the rise of the Republican party. It ran one candidate for president in 1856, John Fremont, the Western explorer. And he didn't win the election because obviously there was no president Fremont, but their next candidate, Abraham Lincoln, did win. Yeah. And when he won, the nation entered this convulsion, the greatest convulsion so far in our history. We're in a period that's like that right now. You know, it's not identical, but it's like that in the sense that the major parties are in a state of failure, but nothing really has quite come along to oppose or replace them. And when it does, I think you're going to see epical changes in American life and culture and politics.
1: Right now, I'm reading this book called The Payoff by Jeff Connaughton. I I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He was a, a staffer for Biden. It's fascinating because he—I
0: read all about him in the New Yorker magazine. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, it's a long piece by George Packer.
1: He was featured in Packer's book. Exactly. This is his own book. He's written this himself. And the fascinating thing about this dude is that he starts off the book saying how he stepped away from all this now, and he just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, that was the introduction. And now I'm reading this, and I'm waiting for like the turn because it is unreal the level well, he kept
0: on going back to the well exactly uh, exactly, exactly many times after he was disillusioned by yeah. the behavior of his mentor Joe Biden
1: well in the the solve <clears> of <throat> you know millions of dollars you know yeah. hurts the pain a little bit
0: let's give the listeners the understanding that this guy started out as a, like a, a staffer for Joe Biden the senator right and then moved to the white house And then left and became a major K Street lobbyist raking in millions of dollars. Right. And then became completely disillusioned.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating to me because he did talk about the Obama Justice Department. I also just read the book by the guy who ran TARP, and I can't.
0: Neil Borofsky.
1: Yeah, the inspector general for TARP. Both of those two books just have me spinning because you realize that there's no one, not only is there no one minding the store, but it's almost like the vandals have the store, you know? Like oh, they're, yeah. Like they're running it.
0: It's a looting operation. It's like a – what is that uh, new term for when a crowd gathers and goes into a 7-Eleven?
1: Oh, yeah. It's a flash mob. A flash mob
0: has <laughs> <is> invaded, <laughs> you know, institutional America.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well – It's kind of funny because I I feel like awkward saying that, you know, it's because it shouldn't be that way. And you look at a country like Greece and it's easier to say, well, you know, third world country, backward, corrupt politics. But gosh, the differences between if you didn't write the name of the country, but just described like the practices and the policies and read that you would find a hard time getting a real distinction between the two today.
0: And it's really alarming because, uh, at least as far as I understand, the major appeal of the United States for finance and business over the years
1: is <laughs> the rule the of fact law. that,
0: yeah. that it, we had the rule of law here <laughs> in the sense that contracts were honored, things were done transparently and honestly. You were given the ability to understand how a transaction worked. And we've gotten away so completely from all of those things. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that it's hard for me to understand the theory that hot money or, quote, liquidity from other parts of the world where people don't have such a high regard for their government, you know, why that money wants to come to the United States now. Right, right. Because, you know, evidently that's been responsible for quite a bit of the pump up of the stock markets. It's a little hard to understand why they view us as the so-called best house in a bad neighborhood.
1: Right, right. The prettiest horse in the glue factory, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, the cleanest shirt in the the laundry (laughs) basket.
1: (laughs) Well, Jim, it's always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing these insights. Come back when we uh, get that fiction book out, The Next Installment of the World Made by Hand, and we'll chat again.
0: A History of the Future, coming out in September from the Atlantic Monthly Press. A
1: History of the Future. I can't wait. Thanks, Jim. Well, thank you. Bye-bye, Chuck. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pot right now.
0: Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating.
1: The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.
0: Pleasing rest area of the bike trail where the uh, easy motoring utopia meets nature. Some clown in an office somewhere thought that this would be a good idea, and that's why it's here, not because anybody really uh, tested uh, whether or not people would feel good here. And in fact, it's really an amazingly brutal environment. Where did we get the idea that chain link was, in, was a pleasing ornamental material? It's really suitable for dog runs and scrap yards and prisons. So what you get here really is sort of the ambience of riot and cell block D. The assault upon your neurology is really impressive.
1: And you really have to be here to appreciate it.